a listener production. <gasps> what? <laughs> I was preparing. Well, I guess it's pretty obvious that my attempt last week to become the only star of the show <laughs> is well and truly dead because he's here. <laughs> You're hearing both of us. <laughs> Your coup attempt failed. Take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. Hello, Gistners. Welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And if there are no technical glitches this week, you should be hearing <laughs> both of us. Oh, my God. I can't imagine how weird that would have been to hear me go, well, first I went, the petunias, the petunias, which was like a funny joke. And then everyone thought you were being a bitch because yeah, you didn't yeah. laugh. <laughs> and then, so they were like, this is weird. And then I said, take it away, my dulcet tone Adonis. And then there was just no noise Sorry. for 30 seconds. <laughs> and you had really nailed that one, by the way. You did a really Very good job. It was one. like yeah. the most perfect one you've ever done. And yeah, we have no idea what happened. But last week, only my audio uploaded. We fixed it. We fixed it. But it was very humorous <laughs> listening to it. It was very confusing getting all the messages through. From yeah, people. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because every everybody thinks that they are the first person to message you about yeah. it. So, like, literally even, like, 12 hours later, we were getting messages going, guys, there's only one person on the fit. We're like, yeah, no, we, <laughs> we got it. <laughs> it's, refresh your app. Um, yeah, so we're both here now. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to our voices talking. Mm-hmm. How's your week? Um, fine, thank you. Um, hold on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Australian Podcast Awards were last week and we didn't get nominated or win anything. I wonder why. <laughs> In 30 seconds, we just said, here are our voices talking and I burped. <laughs> <laughs> Primo content. <laughs> Primo content. Uh, we um, knew last year was a fluke. Uh, we knew it was a fluke or we um, threw ourselves under the rug by um, turning up as drunk Moira Roses. Mm-hmm. That and might they have decided something to do with it as they well. They never <laughs> We've been blacklisted. <laughs> We've been blacklisted. Um, you know, I'm good. How are you, darling? You look tanned as usual. Oh, my God. We've had no sunshine up here. I literally have seasonal affective disorder right now, and it's oh, December. Please. You have seasonal affective disorder when you sit in the shade for five minutes or more. <laughs> so you like, can imagine how bad it is now. We've had no sunshine, and it's been like 20 degrees and under for the last couple of weeks. It's been so miserable. That's my I'm excited dream to come weather. to Melbourne. The weather looks better there than it does here. Oh, yeah, you're getting here soon. Mm-hmm, Monday. Oh, shivers, Monday. And Caleb leaves to go home to Adelaide tomorrow night. So that, that means I've got like the weekend to myself. Luxurious. Hey, luxurious. Oh, do you want an update on the um, Christmas wreath and whether or not I have proven the good, the inherent good of humanity? Tell us. It remains. Ooh. The Christmas wreath and the tinsel and the Christmas lights I've decorated out the front remain. Mm-hmm. Only okay. the petunias are gone. 
Positive sign so far. Positive sign so far. And we know that someone super drunk was walking past because someone left a um, beer glass from the pub in the payphone outside our apartment. <laughs> so <laughs> we de- we're definitely like a um, like very populated thoroughfare kind of area. Mm. So if, and we're across the road from a very popular pub. So if we can manage to keep the Christmas decorations up until Boxing Day, then I have proven the inherent good in humanity. I don't think the odds are great, but I'm willing to be optimistic with you. Well, it's been a couple of weeks now, mm-hmm. hasn't it? Yeah. We've got how many days left till Christmas, though? Like oh, 20? Oh, God, Jesus, I don't know. Oh, mm, God. Three more weeks. I'll tell you what. Did you know I saw a thing today that made me want to cry that, 2021 to the year 2000 is what the year 2000 was to 1979. <laughs> like, no, thank you. No, thank you. I wish to unsee this. I, I wish do to not, unknow this. I do not want that. That mm. does not compute for mm. me. <laughs> okay, let's do some breaking news. <gasps> Breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. I see X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. A breaking news. It's coming down the wire. Um, okay, so first up today, I've got a little update. Do you remember how we've talked about um the two gay penguins who live at yeah. the zoo in Sydney? Mm. Um, their names are Magic and Sven. And their love affair became public in um, 2018 when they adopted and raised, like incubated a little egg together at Darling Harbour. So they Mm. were like two gay dads. And um, there was just a little update recently that they're still together. They've had their third Mm. anniversary. Um, The aquarium's penguin keeper said that um, she's thrilled to see them still together. They're one of the most devoted couples in the colony. Magic still regularly collects the most perfect pebble that he can find for Sven, displaying what a great hunter and partner he can be. And they set a great example to the rest of the colony. They're inseparable, proving just how strong penguin bonds can be. And they've also noticed that um, a bunch of the newer penguin couples set their nests up close to Sven and Magic because it's kind of like they're trying to learn from the best. <gasps> oh, they're running couples counselling sessions. Yeah, they're sessions, doing that little... Workshops. I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Sven and Magic, uh, their three-year anniversary going strong. Oh, that's excellent news. Can you please post a photo of them on oh, yeah, the Instagram? Oh, yeah, I will. Yes. We'll put it on the Insta. They're so sweet together. Mm. Um. Oh, and speaking of, Caleb and I just had our two-year anniversary. What? What? Oh, yeah, you posted something that looked almost pornographic from a restaurant on Instagram. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did went, not like it. We went out to dinner and um, we went to this uh, this amazing restaurant in South Melbourne called Bamboo and... Um, we were going to post a photo of each other because we were like, oh, my God, we hardly ever post photos of each other and um, or, like, together. But then I took a video of him letting the um, uh, pork belly rib, or was it like a rib? I don't know. Just whatever meats around that area of a pig um, was so, like, soft and beautiful that it just slipped right off the bone. 
and it was like the sexiest food video I'd ever seen. And I was like, let's not post a photo together. Let's just post a video of this pork belly falling off the bone. <laughs> Tasted oh, really good. I felt personally attacked seeing that. Oh, it was beautiful. Oh, nearly yeah. you. Mm. Two years, COVID relationship through and through. True COVID relationship. Does it feel like two years or does it feel longer or shorter? It feels like 35. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, because it's so weird because we got together at the end of 2019 and then he came over to Sydney when the start of COVID and it was like, oh, it looks like, you know, we might have to go down into lockdown for just a couple of weeks. like. Mm. And so he was like, well, why don't I come do it with you? That'd be fun. And we were like, okay. And so he drives from Adelaide to Sydney. As he's driving over the New South Wales border, SA shuts its borders so he mm. knew he couldn't get back in. And then lockdown, as we now know, didn't just go for a cute, fun couple of weeks. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so he ended up staying with me in Sydney for like three months, I think. Mm. Which, like, we'd only just been dating for, like, very recently. So it was kind of make or break. And then here we are. You made it. We made it. Who'd have thought? Yeah. So, yeah. And it feels like 35, which makes sense for him because he's 70. Yeah. <laughs> so many people were saying, because um, they've all watched uh, Could You Survive on the Breadline, which is finished now, the uh, mm. last episode aired last week, the doco that he was on. And um, so many people were saying they were shocked by how old he actually is because everyone truly does think he's actually like 45. Oh, yeah. And they mm. said his actual age on the show. And I had so many messages from people going, did I? I'm sorry. I, I thought they just said he was, wait, what? Uh, is he? <laughs> like, yes. Even people who know, they forget I know. once they've watched him or <laughs> listened to him for a little bit and then they get the reminder and they're like, oh, what? Uh, oh, yes, hang on. I knew that. <laughs> That's funny. It is. He's had a lot of fans from that. I bet he has. We've been getting approached a lot on the street with people telling him how much they loved watching him on that show. That's excellent. I know. He was First very time ever. He was. First time ever in our relationship that he gets recognized more than me. What's that about? Ooh, look out. I had to get out there. That? Got to get my own doco. Jeez. <laughs> could <laughs> no, you but survive on the breadline? We already know you could. But they're all very much his target demo. Like whenever people are approaching us, if they're over 50, I'm like, this one's yours. <laughs> if they're like around like 40 or younger, I'm like, this one's for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway. Um, okay, next. Have you watched the last season of Pen15? I haven't watched the first season yet. What? Sorry, I know, I know. It's Jacob one of those things that's been on my list, Stanley. but I keep forgetting to get around to. I don't even often put records in breaking news anymore, but I did this week because it was so heartbreaking and amazing and good. Mm. You've got to watch Pen Fifteen. Well, I'll be able to binge like the whole thing now, right? Yeah, Cause... yeah, because it's finished. Yeah. yeah. Um. Oh my god. So for those who don't know, Pen Fifteen, it's a play on the word of like how kids write penis in school, like, Mm. to be naughty. Um, But anyway, it's set in, I think, like, the year 2000 um, with two 13-year-olds who are in, like, year 7 or year 8. But the 13-year-olds are played by the, like, 35-year-old writers Mm. and creators of the show. Mm. And they are both just so good at acting 
you believe they're 13. Mm. You absolutely believe they're 13. But it's just an amazing kind of piece of nostalgia for people our very specific age because it is exactly what it was like mm-hmm. being 13 in the year 2000. Like, mm-hmm. it's just so good. It is I'm such gonna a love good it. show. I know I'm going to love it. You will actually love it and you will be screaming. And the final episode, I was actually like blubbering, blubbering oh. mess. <laughs> I was crying so much. It was. It's just been such a good show, and they were hoping to get another season, but it got cancelled because of COVID and stuff. But um, everyone really needs to watch Pen Fifteen. I love it so much. Okay, on the list. Yeah. Um, and then my other bit of breaking news is that everyone needs to watch Made. What's that? You don't know anything. <laughs> We're in the golden age of TV and there is too much to consume and there are not enough hours in the day. Made is a new show on Netflix, which my older sister Rhiannon actually watched all the way through. And I always know something is good if Rhiannon takes what precious little time she has out Mm. of her crazy busy single mum life to watch something. Um, It's based on a book by a woman who um, in like... I think she was like 20 and she was in a really um, awful abusive relationship. She got pregnant. She had a little baby and she escaped this relationship and basically spent the next two years living in shelters and um, navigating like the American welfare system while working as a maid Mm. for incredibly wealthy people. And so she wrote this book about just like what, that experience was like, but also just all the really juicy stuff about what it's like to clean rich people's houses. Mm-hmm. And um, it's turned into this, it's been turned into this amazing TV show um, with uh, Margaret Qualey, who is Andy McDowell's daughter. And Andy uh-huh. McDowell plays her crazy mother. Oh. And um, it's such a good show. It's one of my most favorite things I've seen on Netflix this year. Okay. Yeah, you got to watch it. Pop that on the list as well. Can you tell there's like not a lot going on in life right now that two of my breaking news are just TV shows? (laughs) (laughs) Gay penguins and TV shows. That's all that's going on in the world this week. (laughs) It really just is right now a crawl to the finish line of 2021, (laughs) isn't it? It's all a happening. Oh, oh, um... Live shows. Oh, yes. Mm. Adelaide went on sale. Um, mm-hmm. So we are going everywhere, Australia. We are mm-hmm. going to every little nook and cranny place. We've got a big tour um, scheduled. We've been having lots of high-powered, busy, important meetings about it. And, um, yeah, Adelaide has just gone on sale because it's part of the Adelaide Fringe Fest. So mm-hmm. Adelaide people, please come to our show. Um, at the Royalty Theatre, and then tickets for all the other places will go on sale soon, as soon as they, like, do the things they need to do to set that up. We're not in charge of that. Shouldn't be too much longer. Yeah, so put it on your Christmas list. Um, It'll all definitely be on sale, I reckon, in the next week or so, Mm -hmm. every place. And um, if your neck of the woods doesn't go on sale just like wait a hot sec or hassle us and then our tour manager will put it on the list and we'll go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can't wait. I'm so excited. This is yeah, going to be so we're much pumped. fun. We're so pumped. There's like some big obnoxious dance numbers 
happening. <laughs> I've just basically said to Jacob the last few weeks, here is a list of famous like dances I would like you to learn from Britney, Christina, Beyonce, Celine, Cher. And I was like, and when you come to Melbourne, it is your job to teach them all to me. She acted like I didn't already know the dances. <laughs> yeah, so there's some, um, yeah, it's going to be really fun. We're pumped. It's mm-hmm. going to let the sad little drama school dropouts deep inside of us finally have their moment in the spotlight. Oh, we're going to shine. We're going to sparkle. We're going to dazzle. Dazzle. Okay, so that was breaking news. But what topic are you doing this week, Jacob? What am I getting just the gist of? I think this will get you excited because this is the story of some very rich people getting scammed by some I love those. And it's a female scammer, the scammer in question as well. Um, So I think this is going to go down a treat. This is the story of the biggest known case of art fraud in Mm. history. So one single artist made 63 paintings that were passed off as the works of 11 different famous master painters. Those paintings sold for a total of more than $80 million over the course of 15 years. This is most commonly known as the Nodler forgery case because the gallery that sold the majority of the paintings was called the Nodler Gallery. And it is wonderful. So this is like someone just was like a few splotches on a thing and then they were like, this is a Picasso. And then people believed it. Essentially, yes. Oh, my God. It's a never-before-seen Picasso, and it's been hidden away for all these years, and now oh, so, you could own it. You know, don't you think it would be easy to do that, though? Like, if you, you're not doing a copy of one that already exists, because mm. obviously the famous painters, we have all the paintings that they've done, mm-hmm. but if you were to be like, oh, hey, here's just a Picasso that I found in my great-grandma's attic that we were clearing out. Mm -hmm. If it kind of looks like one and smells like one, then hey. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of thing probably does uh, does happen a lot. Yeah. And it's never found out or the forgery is sort of covered up, but this one had the spotlight shone on it. And I bet, is this like... Is this like when the one you did with the um, fake wine where all the people who are meant to be able to tell a fake Mm -hmm. are the ones who had absolutely no idea that they were fake? Oh, I love it when people are idiots like that. Most embarrassed. Yes. Yes. And no amount of backpedaling could really restore their reputation. Please, you know how much I love rich people getting embarrassed. Tell me, tell me right now. Well, let's start in late 2011. Pretty much everyone connected to the art world in any way, critics, dealers, collectors, all of them just went into this sudden state of shock and mourning because out of the blue, the Nodler Gallery announced that it was closing immediately, which was just unthinkable to anyone in the art world because it had been around for more than 165 years. It was the second oldest gallery in the United States of America and it was this really respected institution that no one thought they were going to outlive. They thought Nodler was going to be around forever. So that's like for a TV connoisseur, that'd be like someone going, Netflix is shutting down today. Yeah. You just never think it would happen. For me, it was like if Cher just announced with a three-sentence email that she was retiring and was never uh, going to be part of the entertainment industry no. ever again. Don't you dare. Toy, toy, toy. Oh, yeah. 
never going to happen. <laughs> um, but that is what people thought about Nodler, Nodler, that it would not just shut down. Certainly not one week into a new three-week exhibition that they were ha- having and not just via an email. But then a few days of confusion passed and then the media found out that a day before the announcement was made, Nodler had been sued by a former client who had purchased a Jackson Pollock painting from them for $17 million and that painting had turned out to be fake. (gasps) So that's when not just the art world but the rest of the world got very interested and the Nodler Gallery became way more famous than it had ever been previously as the Mm -hmm. full story started to emerge. So to understand what happened and how, we need to go back to the early 1990s when a woman named Anne Friedman took over as the director of the Nodler Gallery where she'd worked since 1977 and she'd proven herself to be like the most incredible salesperson there. So she was Mm -hmm. given the job because of that sales skill she had, despite the fact that she was relatively young to have that sort of prestigious position. She was in her early 40s and she was a woman, mm. but she hustled to get the job for herself and good at schmoozing rich people. It. Very good at that. And, yeah. you know, matching the client to the perfect piece and then setting the perfect price. So the gallery got a really mm. good profit margin so this, out of it. So this is the kind of gallery, this isn't like just little nothing. This is like a client comes in. And they're like, I'm in the market for a Picasso and mm-hmm. you sell them a $10 million Picasso. It's yes. not like small time. This is big time paintings. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's even more so along the way that when an artwork comes her way, she knows exactly who to ring to say, I've got this available uh, now. Yeah. And she knows exactly what they're going to be willing to pay as well. So yeah, yeah. she was very much kind of the gatekeeper in this world once she took over this role, which... Like I say, it was her dream job, but she knew it was under threat from the very beginning because the guy who owned the gallery, his name was Michael Hammer. Does that sound familiar to you? No. Army Hammer's dad. <gasps> oh, who is apparently a freak just like Army Hammer. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So for those of you who don't know, Army Hammer is the actor who recently got like busted um, with all these texts to a woman that wasn't his wife, which is, like, fine. I never really care when people cheat, whatever, that's their business. But the texts were, like, really freaky things. Like, mm. he was, like, asking women to do, like, weird cannibal stuff with him and, mm. like, he's a freak. And I've heard his dad is, like, grosser than he is. Yeah. Incredibly slimy. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Just the gist. Just the gist. <laughs> Um, yeah, according to his sister, according to a bunch of family members, like he's <gasps> he's really bad news. He owned the Nodler Gallery and mm-hmm. he'd been really upfront with Anne that if the gallery was no longer profitable, he would shut it down in a heartbeat. He had no sentimental love for the gallery. Yep. He'd sell the business, he'd sell the property and she'd probably be kicked out. And the reason he was so clear about this was because in the early 90s when Anne took over, the Nodler Gallery was not doing so well financially because all these galleries were opening up downtown that were really cool and edgy and hip and Nodler yeah. started to look like this crusty old dusty old relic yeah, yeah, up in the Upper East Side. So Anne knew she had to somehow make Nodler a destination again. She needed to get in some really desirable pieces to draw her clients back because her job really depended it. And then yeah. just as she needed it, she was introduced to a woman named Glafira Rosales. 
And what a name, Glafira mm, Rosaris. She's a Mexican immigrant who made friends with one of Anne's assistants by going to all sorts of openings and exhibitions and parties and striking up conversation with him. She yeah. told him she ran her own little independent gallery. And once she felt like she had an in with him, she asked him if he could introduce her to Anne because she'd recently been asked by some family friends to sell some pieces by some very major painters that she felt really underqualified to sell herself. Mm -hmm. So Jamie agreed, arranged a meeting between Glafira and Anne. Glafira showed up to the meeting with two paintings by an abstract expressionist artist called Richard Diebenkorn, who just mm -hmm. died earlier that year. And of course, Anne asked her, so how did you get your hands on these works? And Glafira explained she'd grown up in Mexico City, part of high society. Her parents were wealthy art dealers and one of their best friends was also one of their best clients. And she couldn't reveal the identity of this friend. Mm -hmm. She explained he'd also recently died and his kids wanted to sell off pieces from his art collection. And they'd reached out to Glafira to help because they knew she had connections in the art world. And Anne happily bought the story. It seemed plausible enough. She agreed to sell the demon corns on Glafira's behalf. And Glafira said her family friends just didn't care about the money. They just wanted the artworks to go to a collector who was going to love them. And she just trusted Anne to give her whatever deal she thought was fair. And Anne really should have seen that as a red flag. The art world doesn't work that way. But instead, mm. she just saw dollar signs. Her greed yeah. took over. So is this a is painter a big deal? Like, was this going to be big money? Medium league. Not okay. major league, but not minor. Yeah, this okay. was kind of a warm-up exercise for yeah. Glafira, you'll see. That's and what also, scammers always do, a little bit at first to see how you take it, and yep. then they push even further. Little bit of bait. And also it was very clever for Glafira to get the in through Jamie first and to um, mm. show Anne she trusted her by saying, oh, I don't care about the money. You choose whatever you think is fair. So... Anne agreed she was going to find a buyer for the paintings, but first off, she needed to show them off to a few people to get some attention for the gallery. The fact she had these never-before-seen Diebenkorns that had been hidden away in a private collection in Mexico for 40 years. Yeah. She even invited Diebenkorn's widow and daughter to come and see the works, and they were very suspicious about the whole thing because... Richard Diebenkorn's wife had kept a record of every artwork he'd ever produced. She even kept all the scribbles he did on paper and she didn't remember these two paintings. Mm. And when they went to see them, something in their gut just felt off. They didn't think they really were Diebenkorn's, but they'd been briefed by their lawyers to never, ever, ever say anything that would cast doubt on the authenticity of any works of Diebenkorn's because they could be sued for defamation of property. Oh. If they couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt that a work was a fake, then they could end up paying a whole lot of money. So it was because too risky. Because that means basically a rich person who owns a Diebenkorn, if you say that it's not really a Diebenkorn, they can be like, well, now everybody thinks my Diebenkorn is fake, so mm -hmm. I'm going to sue you for making me look bad, basically, even yep. though you are related to the artist. That's correct. Oh, yep. what a 
bizarre system. It's a really tricky situation. And over the years, heaps of like even the Andy Warhol Foundation, there were companies that were set up to authenticate artworks. They've shut themselves down and refused to do authentications now. Because they get sued. Yeah, there's just too much risk. Because if you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it's a fake, then you are liable for defamation of property. Wowzers. It's wild. Do you want to just hear a very funny aside story that I think it's so funny you're doing this and we're talking about real and fake artworks and stuff. Mm. Do you want to hear what Caleb and I did the other night when we got home like pretty drunk? Mm. So this, <laughs> I don't know if people know this. I don't, I don't even know what channel it's on, but late at night, I'm talking like one in the morning in Australia, there is this channel and it's like an art auction, like mm. a live art auction but it's all just like prints of fate of famous artworks. And Caleb and I often, when we come home pretty pissed, it's become this thing we've done over the last year. We'll come home and watch this show and there's this big auctioneer guy and he's like, oh, we got a Picasso, we got a Picasso. And people call in and it's like a live auction on TV. And Caleb and I, I've always found it so ridiculous because I've been like, I feel sorry for all these little old people who are probably calling in. They say, oh, it's a rare print. It's a numbered print. So it's really rare. And I'm like, get them to call me and I will go to Officeworks and print one out for them and it will be free. Because people on this channel, some of these um, like prints and paintings, or whatever, they go for like $5,000, like these copies of like artworks. So anyway... Caleb and I got home a bit pissed a couple mm. weeks ago and I was like, let's effing bid. Let's bid on something. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's called America's Value Channel. Mm. And I was like, I just want to see what happens. Like when you call, like how how is it live if they're in America? I don't understand. Like let's do this. And so we're like a bit drunk and I call and they answer straight away. So I was like, oh, it's ringing. And then this girl was like, hello. And I was like, oh, hello. And she was like, hello. (laughs) And there was this um, print of a sketch of turkeys. And that was the only thing going at that point. And so I just went, we want the turkeys. And she went, what? I said, we want the turkeys. And Caleb's like laughing his head off. And she's like, oh, um, yep, okay, you want to put a bid on the turkeys? And I was like, yes, bid on the turkeys. And she's like, the current bid is like X amount. And I was like money's not a not like not a problem we want to win the turkeys and so literally it's so much fun like you're on the phone and then you see your bid and he's like oh yes some blah blah over here and I was like that's our bid and she's like yeah that's your bid and I was like oh my god so anyway we won the turkeys <laughs> um and I'm really scared to say the number out loud that we paid please you have to uh, factoring in like changing US dollars to Australian dollars and shipping, mm-hmm. um, we paid about $510 for a <laughs> print by some famous artist of a sketch of turkeys. But then while the girl was like doing it, she's like, you won. And I was like, oh, 
oh, we won. And, and then I was, and so then I was like just wanting to chat to her because I was like, we were a bit pissed. And I was like, so where are you right now? And she said, um, I'm in Atlanta. Mm. And I was like, oh. And but she had an Irish accent. And I said, mm. but are you from Ireland? She goes, yeah, I'm from Ireland. But um, she goes, they get a lot of people from like um, England, Ireland, Scotland and Australia to come in and man these phones because this show is only for Australia. Oh. And so they want people to feel like they're talking to like oh. someone they recognize. And I was like, wait, so you're in Atlanta right now. I said, so when we just bid, I said, like, are you in the room with the auctioneer on TV? Because I could I could hear him mm. in the background. She goes, yeah, like he's right here. She goes, when you bid, we're at the computers and we hold up a paddle, like we've got a bid and then that's how it all works. And she goes, and so then you won. And I was like, oh, I said, so do people like bid a lot? She goes, yeah, they bid a lot. She was like, that was one of the cheapest items of the night. And I was like, oh, thank God, because I was a bit drunk. Who knows how far I would have gone, like, for what cost? Um, But anyway, so we got this ugly, like, sketch of turkeys, and we just could not stop laughing. We talked to this girl, Natasha, who was so nice. And um, I got the notification today that it's going to be here via FedEx in a few days. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I know, it's so <laughs> ugly. I'll put up a photo of it. But I said to Caleb, that's that's your anniversary present because I can't believe we just spent $500 on a drunken joke. Like, <laughs> Which how is going to appreciate in value. It's an investment as well. As I just, joke. but that's what I don't understand. They're just prints. Mm. But like apparently prints can be authorised mm. by the artist's estate. So it's like, oh, we only we only printed 20 of these prints. And it's like, yeah, and I've got a printer myself. I could <laughs> just print that out. Like the art world is bizarre, the way, the value they put on things. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so back to, back to <laughs> the story. The widow Diebenkorn and her daughter yes. leaving Anne's gallery and so all they, can they do is sort of smile and say, oh, it's lovely. They suspect it's not real, yep. but they can't really say anything because mm-hmm. they might get sued, but That's they right. are like, it's not real. Is there ways to, um, are there ways to check, like, surely the experts would know by, like, the quality of the paper and the paints and they could tell the time of when those mm-hmm. paints existed and that kind of thing? You'll see as this story unfolds that they did occasionally do their best with Mm. that sort of thing. But the fact really came down to that if Nodler was selling an artwork, everyone just trusted it must be a real artwork. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? They were, you know, shorthand for this has been vetted because this is being sold by Nodler. Yeah. But, um, yeah, in this particular instance, a few months after they'd gone to see the paintings and wrote to Mrs. Diebenkorn and daughter and said she found a very happy buyer for the works and thanked them very much for coming in and authenticating them because their endorsement had made a huge difference in being able to sell the mm. paintings. And the widow Diebenkorn was furious because she definitely did not Yeah, they didn't endorse. They just nodded politely. Just said, oh, they're lovely and left. Mm. Um, and this really sort of set the tone for the way Anne continued to operate from here on out. So it seems like Anne is asking as little questions as possible if Correct. she can make a sale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she sold each of the paintings for $95,000 and gave Ooh, Ophira $40,000 
of that. So an enormous and unusual profit margin mm. as well. So that's more than the $500 turkeys. A little bit, yeah. Which is literally my first foray into the art world in my life was America's Value Channel at 2 o'clock in the morning laughing my head off. <laughs> so. I can now call myself a collector. You have begun your collection. Yes, you're (laughs) on your way. (laughs) Um, All right. A couple of months went by before Glafira came back to Nodler. And that time, the second visit, she brought something that got Anne really, really excited. The Devoncorns had been lovely, but what Glafira Mm -hmm. brought in the second visit was gobsmacking. (laughs) 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 Well, what... It would look like to you and to me is just two differently coloured rectangles, one on top of the other, like Uh very, very basic. But if you had a trained eye, it would look to you like a masterpiece. It was another previously unknown painting by another abstract expressionist painter called Mark Rothko. And this was a big deal because Rothko's works were experiencing this massive surge in popularity and in price in the mid-90s. So Anne was drooling over the painting and she said to Glafira, okay, this is a pretty major find. I'm definitely going to need some more information about these family friends Mm. of yours and their mysterious art collection. And, of course, Glafira was happy to expand on the story as much as she could but said she just couldn't share any names. So she outlined that her parents' friend, we'll call him Mr. X, he'd moved from Eastern Europe to Mexico at the end of World War II. He was very wealthy, had a holiday house in Switzerland, and decided he wanted to start a collection of American art, abstract expressionist art for both of his homes. So in the 50s, he and his wife went to New York for a couple of months to go on a massive shopping spree. And they were being led around by this high-profile art dealer called Alfonso Osorio, real guy. Um, And he was friends with all the major American artists, so he was able to take Mr. and Mrs. X around to visit their studios so they Mm -hmm. could just buy whatever they wanted at discount prices for cash and for buying multiple units. Mm -hmm. And everything was kept off the books. There were no taxes involved at all. No assets had to be declared, which was quite dodgy. And Glafira said she wanted to keep that out of the story. That's the perfect story. Like, it's the perfect cover, exactly. though. Like, oh, there was no taxes, so can we not really talk about that? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's not on the books, but it's only because they were doing something a little bit dodgy. Exactly. Um, but Anne explained, we're going to have to tell people that this was all done off the books, cash transactions. That's going to be the first thing that people ask when I show them I've got a new, never-before-seen Rothko. They're going to be like, well, where's the paper trail? She's going to have to explain why it doesn't have a a paper trail. And so Glafira said, okay, I get it, but that just means it's really, really, really important. We keep the family anonymous. I can't give you any names, any locations. Um, And so Anne agreed she was going to sell the Rothko and quick as she could, she shared her discovery with the world and began the process of getting the Rothko experts from all over the place to validate the work. And the general consensus was it was real, it was sublime, the experts gushed over it and said it was the most important discovery in the art world of the (laughs) previous decade. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I get why they're excited. Not over actual painting, but over the fact that they loved Rothko and they never thought they were going to see a Rothko they hadn't seen already. Sure. But isn't it weird how we put 
things aren't worth anything until we put a value on Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Like our value and money is just a concept. It's Mm -hmm. not really real. Like, God, this could get really deep. But it is like so strange. It's like uh, with like Banksy, for example. Mm -hmm. Like he'll do spray painting on the side of someone's house and their house goes from being worth $200,000 to $8 million just because we've decided that Banksy is worth money. Mm. Like it's just this very weird thing where rich people decide something is cool to own and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it's worth millions when it's a day earlier it could have been worth nothing. And the most ridiculous example of this is NFTs. Yes, exactly. That's been taking the world by storm. Non-fungible tokens. Yeah, and like if you choose to believe in that, then okay, it's real for you. But if you're like me and you don't choose to believe in that, it just seems the most lovable thing. And it's been happening since forever. It's the same as um, the um, very infamous tulip overvaluation back in like, I think it was like the late 1800s where people just suddenly decided that tulips were worth like thousands and thousands of dollars. Mm. And so there became this craze to buy tulip bulbs and tulip seeds and to have tulips. And so you couldn't buy a single, like a single tulip costs like a thousand dollars. And so all these people were buying tulips and for all this crazy amount of money. And then it was like one day someone was just like, tulips aren't worth anything. This is dumb. And then like all of a sudden people had literally spent their life savings on tulips Mm. and the next day tulips were worth nothing Mm. because it's just all a concept. Same thing as Beanie Babies in the 90s. (laughs) People spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on Beanie Babies. It's the same now as Polly Pockets. Like you know that I collect Mm. vintage Polly Pockets and there are some Polly Pockets that like I was trying to explain it to Caleb. I was like, yeah, I really want this particular Polly Pocket from this year, this model. And I said, oh, but that one's really expensive. That one's like $500. And he was like, why? And I said, because it just is. And he's like, but why is that one $500 and you've bought other ones for $40? And I'm like, because that's just a, that's a really popular one. Mm. And he's like, but who said it's worth $500? I'm like, everybody who has Polly Pockets. <laughs> Like, well, they just decide the price. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no reason, rhyme or reason to it. That's right. Yep. But at this point in the 90s, people were willing to part with several million dollars for a Rothko. A Rothko of two rectangles. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. Um, So once she'd sold that work, Anne and Nodler were well on their way back to the top of the game. And over Mm -hmm. the next few years, Glafira would come into Nodler Two or three times a year with another piece from Mr. X's collection. And Anne from never just knew. this one collection. Mm-hmm. Anne never knew how many items she had and she never knew what Glafira was going to show up with, but she was never disappointed because she brought in more Rothkos. She brought in a few Jackson Pollocks and mm. a few Andy Warhols and another important artist called Robert Motherwell. As if Anne didn't know something dodgy mm-hmm. was going on. Why didn't, if she wanted to sell it, Glafira, why didn't she bring them all in at once? Why is she only bringing them in once every six months? Because she needs time to paint them. Yeah. Like I just, like I just, I really feel like Anne knows it's dodgy. She would have to have a sense in her gut, surely. Like she wasn't born yesterday. She's been in the art world for decades. She knows forgeries happen. Yeah. And what are the odds of finding one rare 
incredibly high-valued painting mm-hmm. in the collection of a family member. Mm-hmm. The odds of that are, like, out of this world, but then finding 10 <laughs> or 15 from different artists. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just really... Yeah. It's very hard to swallow, but she says that she just fell for the con, hook, line, and sinker. She, the whole time, was paying Glafira ridiculously low prices for the works, Mm. and then she was marking them up by more than a 1,000%. So, like, just one example, she bought a Rothko for $950,000 from Glafira and then sold Mm -hmm. that for $8.3 million. (gasps) Yeah, just enormous markups, totally unheard of in the industry. That itself is such a red flag. Yeah, me. that's what I was going to say. That's a red flag because it feels like Glafira is just so relieved that she's getting mm-hmm. money at all. Yep. Like, oh, uh, but if you genuinely sold someone a painting for $950,000 and they then sold it for $8.5 you'd be like, what the fudge? You ripped me off. Mm. But it's like Glafira doesn't want to rock the boat. So she's like, yes, I'll take this measly yep. amount. She just kept saying the family doesn't care about money. They just want the paintings to go to homes that love them. So <gasps> good that you're making a profit. So anyway, everyone felt like a winner. Anne was raking in the cash and she was yep. one of the most powerful dealers in the world now. Nodler was profitable, so her job was safe. All the collectors who bought the paintings were so thrilled with their new pieces. The fact that they'd been able to finally buy a Rothko, they were just chuffed. Yeah. The museums and galleries around the world loved having new artworks to exhibit and they built entire exhibitions around these exciting new works. (gasps) Art critics were writing about them. They were put on the cover of magazines. Like it was a really good, exciting time to be in the art world and Glyphira mm. and Anne understandably became very good friends and they swapped birthday gifts with each other every year. Glyphira's daughter came to work as an intern at the Nodler Gallery and helpfully because of that friendly relationship, Anne could just pick up the phone and tell Glyphira that one of her clients was looking for a particular type of work from a particular artist and then wouldn't you know it, in a couple of months it had turned out that Mr X's kids had decided <laughs> they wanted to sell an artwork that met that specific brief. And things just sort of kept going along like this pretty smoothly until in the early 2000s there were a couple of hiccups. So the first one happened in 2003 when a collector named Jack Levy who had already bought a few items from Mr. X's collection, he bought a Jackson Pollock for $2 million. And he did something that he hadn't done previously and that no other buyer had done previously. Like I said, everyone just sort of accepted if Nodler's selling Mm. it, it must be real. But he decided to be a little bit cautious about this particular purchase and he sent it off to the International Foundation for Art Research to get them to authenticate the work, IFAR. They checked the work out and after a few months they got back to him and said they couldn't authenticate it. They didn't outright call it a fake, but they just pointed out there were colours in this painting that had never been seen before in a Pollock painting. The style was quite inconsistent with his style and they just did not accept the story that Jackson Pollock sold directly from his studio for a couple of thousand dollars at a time in his career where he was the most famous artist in America. He had no need to just do a under-the-table cash transaction. So Jack Levy took the painting back to Nodler to get a refund and Anne just disputed the IFAR report and was like, oh, what would they know? Come on, you know me. 
Trust me, mm. I'm telling you, this is a real painting. You should keep it. It's a really beautiful piece and a great investment. And she was very offended when he said, no, I'm going to go with the International Federation rather yeah. than your <laughs> judgment. And so she reluctantly gave him his $2 million back. And then you'd think that maybe she'd do a little bit of investigation into the authenticity mm. of the painting after that. But no, she just put it back on the market Bumped the price up to $11 million this time. <gasps> to a let from two. Mm-hmm. <gasps> She's shameless. Mm-hmm. But that was around this time, the abstract expressionist art market was exploding. So value mm-hmm. of paintings was going up week after week after week. So because this process had taken a few months, she believed she was justified in bumping the price up to that because that's yeah. what Pollocks were going for at that time. And I mean, you can understand why nobody ever questioned her. It'd be like going to the Chanel store and buying a Chanel handbag. Mm. Why would you assume they're selling you a fake Chanel handbag? Exactly. Yeah. Like it's not like they were would, buying it from the back of a truck. Yeah, like you're literally going to the most reputable gallery in the world. Mm. It's why would it be fake? Mhm. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, She did, however, meet up with Glafira to try to smooth something out because IFAR's report had exposed that the partner of Alfonso Osorio, Mr. X's alleged Mm. uh, purchasing agent, he'd said Alfonso absolutely did not do any such illegal thing ever and he'd known Alfonso his entire career. So Anne needed a bit more information because if the Alfonso connection wasn't real, the story started to feel a bit shaky. So... Glyphira confessed that she'd had to change a few details in the story at the family's request from the truth and that the real story was that Mr. X had been a closeted gay man who lived in Switzerland with his wife and kids and every year he'd leave them at home for a few months, go and party in New York City and be with his lover who was a very well-connected art dealer. And he, the gay lover, was the one who helped Mr. X get all these special deals on the artworks. And Anne was sort of like, it wasn't David Herbert, was it? And Glafira was like, shh. I'll never tell. Wink. (laughs) Um, Because David Herbert was a well-known art dealer slash homosexual in New York City at the time. And so Anne then just filled in the blanks for herself, like, oh, that's why Mr. X's family only started selling the pieces bit by bit in the early 90s because they needed to wait until David Herbert was dead because they were worried that David Herbert, if he saw the works were being sold, he'd out Mr. X and um, the whole thing would be exposed was really smart. She gave like just enough little snippets that then Anne filled in the blanks, but mm-hmm. Glafira didn't actually tell her that so that she's got plausible deniability. She's like, I never said it was David Herbert. You just assumed. That's right. Yep. <gasps> so clever. What a good scam lady. Oh, she's really brilliant the way yeah, she played she's this. she's really good. Um, so Anne was like, okay, all of this makes sense. I fully understand the need for discretion. Few years went by. 2007, another art dealer called Julian Weissman, who used to work with Anne at Nodler and had started up his own gallery, he got in touch with a guy called Jack Flam. And Jack Flam was an expert in an artist called Robert Motherwell. Julian told Jack Flam he'd recently bought a previously unknown piece by Motherwell and he wanted Jack to authenticate it. And Jack did authenticate it. Of course, today, 
He looks back and with hindsight, he said that he'd always had his doubts, but at the time he put in writing that he believed 100% it was an authentic Motherwell. And he asked Julian where he'd bought the painting and Julian said, Glyphera Rosales. So Glyphera had started selling to this other gallery um, so she could get another bite of the cherry. Anne wasn't aware of this. A few months later, she called Jack Flam and said she too had come across a never-before-seen Motherwell and she wanted Jack to evaluate it. So off he went to Nodler and he checked it out and he told Anne he didn't think it looked right. And Anne was like, um, Motherwell's widow, Mrs. Motherwell, already authenticated this and a bunch of other art historians have authenticated it. I invited you here so you could authenticate this as well so please just shut up and authenticate it yeah he was like um maybe just let us borrow it from you and by the way where did you get it we'll check it out and she told him glyphia rosales and he was like okay do you have any other paintings she sold you and and was like yep i've got a few here in the gallery and i've got a few in my house that i bought for myself as well So Jack asked if they could examine all of the mother wells and once they'd completed their evaluation, they told Anne they didn't believe any of them were real and they also Mm. thought there was something up with this Glyphera lady. Mm. And they'd expected Anne to be like super grateful because they were steering her away from trouble, but she was just furious and was like, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Other experts agree these are authentic. I think they're authentic. Do you really think you're smarter than we are? And by the way, I'll have you know, David Herbert himself helped my client's client's father buy this. And he was a very <laughs> close friend of Motherwell. And Jack was like, um, no, David Herbert and Motherwell weren't friends. But okay, why don't we just go ahead and get a forensic test done on the paintings? That way we'll know for sure. And Anne was like, I don't trust forensic scientists, but okay, <gasps> fine. She sent the I mean, off. so the forensics is where they check the paint and the paper and the time and like the time and it sounds like Anne, I I still can't decide. I think she's dodgy, but I can't decide if she outright knows that Glyphera is fake and it's just a cash cow and mm-hmm. if as long as she can get the money, she'll take it. Or if she so badly wants to believe it's real mm-hmm. that she's kind of convincing herself that it is even when everything is pointing to the fact that it isn't. And honestly, as I've been researching this, I have been vacillating from Between the two. one That's what, side yeah. to the other. Like, was she just so caught up in the possibility of her being responsible for one of the world's greatest art discoveries yeah. that she just blinded herself to the red flags? Or And also the money. It's like a lot of money for her. And also... At this point, what's it been? Like almost a decade? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're in it deep now. That's right. So to admit that it's all fake, is it's probably easier to just double down and never admit that it could be a mistake. Yeah, because we've spoken in the past about how con artists, <clears throat> when they get caught, they'll always double, double down. down. People who've yeah. been conned, when they find out they've been conned, will often double down. Yeah. Um, what do they call it? It's um uh, something about... Uh, Lost gains? What am I, what's the thing I'm trying to think? Like, um, you, even though you've, if you've put in $2,000 mm. to a scam and then they say, oh, it's like another 500, 
even if in your mind you know it's a scam, you think, well, I've already sunk in mm. 2000. So if I, if I sunk cost fallacy, that's mm. what I'm trying to think of. So she kind of has that as mm. well. Like I've already got so much in this. Yep. So I've got to just keep going. Keep rolling with it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so she was reluctant, but she sent the works off to be examined by the forensics. And of course, the report came back saying they were definitely fake. fakes because they were probably they made were last week. Painted with paint that Motherwell never used because mm. it hadn't been invented in his lifetime. Yeah, exactly. Mm. They can tell. They can just be like, this is from bloody like office works. Mm-hmm in 2001 like they can tell that stuff roughly that yep yeah um and so Anne read the report and she was like oh just as i suspected forensic scientists cannot be trusted and she (laughs) refused to show jack flam the report until 2009 once she did show him she only showed him a few pages which she heavily edited in the meantime though while that was going on jack flam hired a private investigator to look into glafira rosales and within a week he found out Glafira lived with her boyfriend, Jose, who was a Spanish man who'd previously been convicted for art fraud. Mm. And so Jack went to Anne with this and Anne just brushed it off and said, oh, that doesn't mean anything. And at that point, Jack went, okay, Anne's clearly not going to see reason. I'm calling the FBI. And to this day, Anne is livid about the fact that Jack Flam went behind her back and dobbed her in to the FBI. But so he should have. <laughs> it needed to happen, clearly. Yeah. Anne was not going to see reason. Um, but she feels that he maliciously attacked her and tried to destroy her career rather than giving her a chance to try to sort of subtly, quietly cover up the fact that she had been selling fakes. You'd sold a decade worth of fake paintings. How was she going to subtly cover that up? She yeah, wasn't. Her ways. And there are, as you'll see, there are quite a lot of people who don't ever want it to be exposed that they've bought a fake. It's just too embarrassing for oh, them. Oh, well, yeah. If you've got a Jackson Pollock in your living room and you paid millions of dollars for it, you don't want anyone mm. saying, like, pointing out that it's fake. Mm. So this reaction that Anne had, um, that's what made Jack Flam and a bunch of other people really start to question whether Anne had always known uh. Glafira was dodgy and that she was selling fakes. And a short while after this happened, Anne was asked to leave the Nodler Gallery. Michael Hammer found out about the FBI investigation, didn't want them coming anywhere near him if he could avoid it. He panicked a little, said it'd be best for everyone if Anne take a leave of absence. She was reluctant to go, um, but she was escorted out of the gallery with her tail between her legs Mm. and she never returned and Michael Hammer started the rumour that Anne's lung cancer had come back and she was just taking some time off to heal. That was the public-facing story until Anne realised that made her look a bit dodgy. So she decided to send out an email blast to everybody and try to get ahead of the story and make it clear that she was the victim in this situation and not the villain. And she just announced that she'd chosen to part ways with Nodler despite having done absolutely nothing wrong. But stay tuned because there are some exciting things to come in the future. And she was not lying because in 2011, things got very spicy. This is where we come to the fake $17 million Jackson Pollock (laughs) painting that was exposed. Which, by the way, Nodler paid Glafira $1.9 million for that and then bumped the price up to 17 mil. Yep. 
And the guy who bought it, his name was Pierre Lagrange. He was an investment banker, hedge fund type, and he was having a very public divorce that got heaps of media attention because he Mm -hmm. was leaving his wife to be with a male fashion designer. So everyone was sort of covering the scandal. And they were in the process of splitting the assets and Lagrange tried to sell the Jackson Pollock through Sotheby's and through Christie's. And both of those auction houses said, no, we're not willing to touch this artwork. We've got questions about its authenticity. And we've also heard some rumours about Nodler going around recently. And so Lagrange decided to send the painting off for some forensic testing and sure enough the results came back telling him that there were pigments in the artwork that had not been invented until 15 years after Jackson Pollock had Mm -hmm. died. And so Lagrange went full beast mode, stormed into Nodler to demand his money back within 48 (laughs) hours and the new director of the gallery just said, "Mm, sorry, it's been more than four years, the statute of limitations has passed by now, which means we're under no obligation to give you your money back. If you'd wanted to get your painting authenticated, you should have done it sooner. And understandably, that made him even more pissed. Yeah. He demanded to speak to the woman who'd sold the Pollock to him, Anne Friedman. Anne, yeah. And he was told, sorry, Anne doesn't work here anymore, but here's her number if you want to call her. So, of course he did. (laughs) And they arranged a little meeting in a fancy cafe and he came in hot, threatening to destroy her life and everyone else who was involved with Nodler. And Anne was like, oh, look, Let's calm down. Let's be sensible about this. You want to sell this painting and get your money back. What if I can find you a buyer? And Lagrange was like, you want to knowingly sell this fake fake painting painting to some other sucker. And she was like, oh, we all know forensic testing can't be trusted. I still think the painting is real and I can find you a buyer. And he was like, no, she's dodgy. She's dodgy. This makes you look really bad. I will see you in court and I will destroy you. And off he stormed. Yeah. A few days later, he filed the lawsuit against Nodler and against Dan Friedman. And then the very next day, Nodler closed its doors. (gasps) People were shocked. Then news of the lawsuit went public and people were very intrigued. And some very wealthy art collectors started to get very, very anxious because the reports about the lawsuit included details like the fact that it had never been seen before. It had been hidden away in a private collection. Who'd inherited it? So now all these snooty rich people are going, we've got a fake painting hanging in our house that we paid $10 million for. That's (laughs) right. And some of them wanted to know the truth. So they took their paintings to be evaluated. Others just didn't want to know anything. They wanted to remain in the dark, so they did absolutely nothing. Yeah. And in the meantime, the FBI were getting very close to arresting Glafira and her boyfriend, Jose, and his brother, Jesus, because they knew that all three of them were in on this scam together. But Were they painting the paint? I need to know who was painting the You'll find out in a second. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Jose and Jesus, very slippery. They bolted off to Spain and left Glafira behind to take the fall. Brutal, but smart. She was arrested, denied bail, and at first she just maintained the story about Mr. X and she was selling on his behalf. She had no idea the paintings were fake, but that was yeah. very easy to disprove just by looking at her bank accounts where they could see that Glafira and Jose had kept every cent they'd got from Nodler. They weren't <laughs> sending anything off to yeah. Mr. X's family in Switzerland or Mexico. 
And they could also see they hadn't reported any of that money as income and therefore hadn't paid any tax <gasps> on the tax. $33 million they'd made in the last Oof, 15 that's gonna years. that's going to get you in trouble. Yeah. I feel that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So she knew she was screwed and her best option was just cooperate. Cooperate. Her best option was to cooperate. Um and then just hope for leniency. So she sang yeah. like a canary, explained everything from the beginning. She did she Oh, are you gonna are you about to tell me? Yeah. Did she say that Anne knew? Oh my god, okay, just tell me. Go, tell me. Um, so they looked at the art market, saw that abstract expressionism was rising significantly in value, mm-hmm. and then started scouting artists to try to find one that could master the works of abstract expressionists. And they finally found a Chinese maths professor named Pei Shen Chen, who'd also he'd trained in art as well as in maths in Shanghai yeah. and New York City. And he had a little side hustle painting portraits of people on a corner in Lower Manhattan. And that's how they came across him. And okay. they knew very well that in China, it's very much a tradition of making replicas of other artists' work as a tribute to that artist, as opposed yeah. to making what we'd consider to be a forgery. Like a copy. Yeah. yeah. And it's in, an important part of their training process they go through. So they mm. had a fair bit of confidence that he'd be able to mimic the style of several different artists. And they got him to do a few trials. They liked what they saw. So they set him up with materials like paints that they'd bought from the 1950s and vintage canvases and did their best to try to get the most authentic raw materials and let him loose to create works that looked like Pollock's and Rothko's and Motherwell's and eight other artists. See, this is the thing where, like what we were talking about before, like why some things have value and others don't, like, if he is doing it on a vintage canvas with vintage paints mm-hmm. and he is arguably doing a painting that you cannot tell the difference between, mm-hmm. then why isn't his worth millions of dollars? Like, it's just so weird that, like, this painting that is indistinguishable from that painting is worth $3 and that one's worth $3 million. Mm. But you can't tell the difference between them. Yeah. One somehow becomes sacred because of the person (laughs) who touched the brush that created the painting. Yeah. Isn't that odd how we do that? Mm -hmm. So he, this guy, was doing them all. He pumped them all out. And then once he was finished with them, Jose would then make them look older by staining them with tea bags like we used Ah, to do. Like we used to do in primary school. Like Um, when you were doing a project and it was like a pirate's map. Yes. Or something. You'd. Burn the edges. Burn the edges. Drag yes. a wet tea bag across it. Um, and then he'd pour dust all over them and he'd blast them with hair dryers to make the paint crack. So did everything mm. he could to sort of make them look as authentic as possible. But then, yeah. of course, the final step they needed was a respected dealer to sell the works for them. They couldn't just go out on the street and start flogging million-dollar artworks. Yeah. And so that's why they targeted Nodler. They could tell that Nodler was at a point of desperation because they were so out of fashion at the mm-hmm. time when they started the scam. And like I said, Glyphira, very smart, building up the connection through Jamie to get the introduction to Anne. So there was already an element of trust there. And then starting off small with the low stakes Corns before she went in for the kill with yeah. the Rothko. They just played the whole thing perfectly. So she doesn't say that Anne She does was not in implicate Anne, no. Oh. Mm. 
But um, I still think that Anne just, like you said, the gallery had been in a crappy place. She was probably going to lose her job and mm-hmm. then this came along and there was something in her niggling mind going, this isn't right, mm-hmm. but it's so much money and respect and prestige, so I'm just going to ignore the doubt. Choose to believe, yep. Choose to believe, yeah. Um, of course, the FBI immediately went to meet up with Patient and investigate his house and his little studio in the know? garage. So he said that he had no idea that Glafira and Jose were selling the works as authentic pieces by Rothko, Pollock, etc. He thought yeah. they were just selling his paintings to people who just wanted something that looked Pollock-ish. Which is common in China, like you said. Exactly. Like to have a... And how much were they paying him? Started off around $2,000 a pop. Per painting? Per painting, (gasps) yep. Um, And so he said he just had no idea the types of prices Glafira and Jose were getting and then was just knocked on his feet when he found out how much money Nodler was selling them for. Do you think that's true? Well, Glafira says that's bullshit because he early on saw some of his pieces hanging in galleries <laughs> after they'd been sold through Nodler. And after yeah. he saw that, he asked for a pay rise. And so that's why he then started getting like five to mm. $9,000 per piece. Um, so, yeah, Glafira said that was bullshit. Um, he just acted like he was totally innocent in the whole thing, though. He was even interviewed on TV. Like, he just didn't seem to have any concern that he was going to get in trouble. But then he must have sensed something because just before the FBI went to arrest him, he disappeared to China. Because <gasps> the fact of the matter was he was signing the works as the artists, not as himself. So that's so forgery. That's exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's Definition like, of okay. intent to deceive. So yeah. he got out just in time. Of course, there's no way that China's ever going to extradite anyone yeah. back to the to US. Yeah. Um, they tried to get Jose and Jesus sent back from Spain, but they weren't successful there. So they only had Glafira, but they really strongly suspected that the other person who must be involved in this was Anne Friedman. Anne. And they investigated her as thoroughly as they could, all the while she was declaring herself loudly and frequently in the media that she was totally innocent. She called herself the central victim in all these interviews she did, said she'd just yeah. been completely conned, never had an inkling that the paintings were fake, which is the she had to take that defense because what Mm. the FBI were trying really hard to prove was that she knew she was selling fakes, but it was going to be very difficult to prove that beyond reasonable doubt. Because, I mean, all you have to go on is her word. She's saying, I didn't know. That's right. I mean, unless they can find something in writing or that where she's like, drop the fakes off at 2 p.m., you know what I mean? Like, otherwise, how do you... You can't prove she didn't know. The closest they could come was the record of payments to Glafira because Glafira had asked for every payment that was made to her to come in a combination of checks and bank transfers and cash. And Mm -hmm. she wanted as many installments as possible to come in at under $10,000 so she wouldn't have to declare it to the government. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the FBI argued really hard that The fact Anne was willing to hand over these wads of cash, which is not standard practice in the art world at all, indicates she had to have known something really dodgy was going on. But Anne just never wavered. She just stuck to the story. She had no reason to suspect 
in back in the day. She could acknowledge that looking back and seeing all the red flags all in one go spread out across 15 years. Yes, it looks like there was a lot, but along the way, she was just completely trusting of Glafira. So does she get in trouble? <sighs> she ends up in civil suits, but she can't be tried criminally yet. What do you mean yet? You'll see in a sec. Um, so Glafira was the only one who could be charged with the crime. She went to trial. She was facing 99 years in prison. Woofed. But her defense was Jose had made her do it. He was abusive. He was manipulative. He was threatening mm-hmm. to take their daughter away to live in Spain if Glafira didn't cooperate with the plan. And so the judge was pretty compassionate, just sentenced her to um, a little bit of house arrest and a few months time served. But mm. she had to pay back $81 million in restitution and back taxes. Oh. Yeah, sure, she has that. Mm. She'll just declare bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, They took her house, they took her bank accounts, she had to move into a friend's place, and as of today, she's working as a waitress in Brooklyn. (gasps) Wow. What a story. She should sell her story right. So she's, I think, kind of got some sort of gag order at the moment. I don't really understand why. She did tell. Oh, you're not allowed to profit off a crime. A crime. Mm. Like, so I'm not sure that's always kind of complicated, but they always find ways around that because Anna Delvey has sold her story. Mm. So, But she's used that money to then pay off her debts. and No, but then Netflix organised some deal with her where it was like she got paid, like they called her like a consultant of something and money got paid mm. into some business account of someone else for like her lawyer and she got money out of that mm-hmm. that she didn't have to then pay back. Right. Well, I'm dying for Glafira to do her own tell-all, yes. but she still hasn't done it. She hasn't spoken to the media since the very early days of when this story broke, and she did Which say was uh, 2011, 2012. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, she told a reporter from Vanity Fair, I've got an incredible story to tell, but I've been told by my lawyers I just can't tell it yet. So we're now coming up on a decade that she's stayed mm. silent. Hopefully mm. she's going to share what she knows at some point. And so what happened to Anne? She just got away with it. (sighs) Anne ended up in a bunch of civil lawsuits. So So all the people who she sold paintings to? Certainly not all of them. Um, They tracked down as many of the paintings as Glafira had sold to Nodler and to Julian Weissman. The total ended up being 63. Nodler had sold 40 of those. Only 10 owners of those 40 paintings chose to sue Nodler and or Anne and or Michael Hammer. And of those 10, only one case went to trial. The others all settled out of court. Yep. Um, The one that did go to court was filed by a couple called Domenico and Eleanor de Sole. They'd bought a Rothko from Anne in 2004 for $8.5 million. (gasps) And they were certain... And must have known it was a fake at the time she sold it. So they were out for revenge. They sued for $25 million, but for them it wasn't about the money. They already had tons of money. This was about proving in court Anne was a liar Anne was a cheat. But they settled with Anne before the case went to trial Mm. for an undisclosed amount, but that still didn't mean Anne was off the hook. The trial went ahead to sue Nodler and Michael Hammer, which meant that Anne and Michael were going to have to testify along with a whole bunch of other witnesses. Mm. And this is where things really start to get hilarious and everything paints Anne in a very bad light and it makes the art world look like just such a farce. So... 
a bunch of the people that Anne had claimed had validated, authenticated the pieces had to take the stand. Mm. Some of those people said that they'd only seen the painting for like a minute and all they'd said was, it's beautiful. And then Anne put them on the list as someone who'd authenticated uh, it. Some of them yeah. said, I only ever saw a digital photo that was emailed to me. <gasps> I never saw the painting itself, but their name had been put on the list. There were other people who said, yeah, I, I authenticated it. I put it in writing, but I really didn't believe it was true. But other people had said that they thought it was real. So I decided mm. that I should say I thought it was real as well. A bunch of people revealed that the way Anne would operate as well, she'd invite people around to the, aller- to the gallery. She'd pour them a wine and then she'd take them around and say, oh, and by the way, do you want to see my latest Pollock? And then it, she'd take them into a room, they'd look at the Pollock and they'd say, it's beautiful. Their name would then be on the list of (gasps) authenticators for that work once she'd sort of plied them with a bit of alcohol. Um, Mm. And, yeah, like I said, so many of these experts just desperately backpedalling because they'd destroyed their reputation by again Mm. and again saying, yes, these are definitely Rothko's, yes, these are definitely Andy Warhol's. Um, And so they did their best to distance themselves and say they'd always had their doubts. Everyone just proves it's all nonsense. Yes. Just like the wine. Yes. Just like Rudy Kaniwan with the fake wine. Mm -hmm. Like all the people who said, oh, it's definitely just worth gazillions of dollars. It's amazing. It's high quality. It's like, you don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. It's just everyone just does what everyone else does. Yeah. The only person who really did know was the wife of Richard Diebenkorn. Mm. She'd seen those paintings. They didn't look right to her and she knew that they had never existed. She'd been with him his entire career, but she couldn't yeah. say anything until now when she finally got to take the stand. And it was sort of like, okay, well, maybe this whole defamation of property law doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Nothing's changed, mm. by the way, of course. <laughs> um. So all Anne's friends turned on her. They all insinuated that she was dodgy and that she must have known more surely over the course of 15 years. And, of course, the lawyers had a field day. They lined up every single one of the red flags that Anne should have spotted over the first Mm. seven years of dealing with Clefira. There were more than 60 of them. They argued (laughs) that she had seen all of them. She was aware of all the bad facts. She just glossed over them, hoping she could continue to fool everyone. Apparently... Mm. It was a very, very spicy trial, according to everyone who was in the room. And then it got even spicier when the accountant for Nodler took the stand and walked the court through the gallery's finances for the last few decades of its existence. And a few things were very obvious. Firstly, the gallery would have closed if it wasn't for the money the fakes were bringing in. Had it not been for the business they were getting through Glafira, they would have been $3 million in debt years previously. And that was because Michael Hammer was using the gallery's accounts to just buy himself whatever he wanted. He bought himself a $500,000 Rolls Royce and a $500,000 Mercedes and trips all around the world. And lots of nights with ladies, Mm -hmm. lots of things like that. We could do an episode on him and that whole messed up family at some point. We'll see if that comes around. Um, Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) And Anne had made more than $10 million in commission for the pieces <gasps> because she had a profit-sharing agreement and because she was marking the prices up mm, so enormously, so she was really benefiting from that. Yeah. So it all started to look very much like Anne and Michael could end up in criminal 
trouble if they ended up taking the stand, which they were due to do later that day. But then the court took a recess. And then right when they came back from that break, it was announced all parties had decided they were going to settle and the case was over, which was massively disappointing for all the reporters and all the looky-loos mm. in the audience. Just as they were reaching the climax, the trial stopped. Um, and the DeSoles, very smart, made it known through their lawyer that they were not the ones who approached Michael or Anne to offer to yeah. settle. So everyone walked away knowing it was very obvious that Michael and Anne had decided to just pay the DeSoles whatever they wanted mm. so they didn't have to take the stand and risk revealing they criminal known, activity. Yeah, they would have known that when they got up on the stand after lunch, they were going to be effed mm -hmm. and so they would have just paid whatever it took to not have to do that, which yep. just shows they're guilty. Mm -hmm. um, Anne, of course, kept running around town telling everyone she was so disappointed she never got the chance to testify and tell her side of the story. <laughs> she wanted her day in court, but everyone who was there agrees the best possible outcome happened for you and it was not going well for you in there. And so then by the end of 2016, all 10 of those court cases were settled. And apart from Glafira, pretty much everyone's lives just sort of went back to normal. Michael Hammer still owns the Hammer Galleries Trading in Fine Art. Julian Weissman still has his gallery. And Anne Friedman has started up her own gallery on the <gasps> Upper East Side as well called no. Friedman Art. Yes. So, and people still buy art from her? Yeah, they're willing to take the gamble. They go into her Wowzers. gallery and roll the dice on million-dollar pieces. And you could be buying an $8 million tulip. Yeah. Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. One of the things that I love the most about this story, aside from all the fraudulent work she was selling, she had purchased a few of them for herself, one of which mm. was a Jackson Pollock. And the signature Jackson Pollock in the bottom right-hand corner is misspelled. It's missing the <gasps> C in Pollock. And when they it asked her about not. it, <laughs> she said she just never noticed. Like, why ever as would you trust this woman as an authority? Either she is a blatant criminal or she's blatantly incompetent. <laughs> either way, you don't want to be giving her millions of dollars. Yeah. And this, that's the mind-blowing thing. I mean, this is what everyone says. She's either really, really gullible or she's a really smart con woman who yeah. managed to avoid getting caught by pretending to be really gullible. But yeah, either way, you would think that she would just not have any business whatsoever in the art world, but some people still, for whatever people reason, trust do. her. Yeah. Wow. Like Google's a thing. You can look it up. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, Pollock was spelt wrong. <laughs> it's so That's funny. like getting like an Andy Warhon. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, mm. that's like, if that's not a sign, then what is? Yeah. And Jackson Pollock never misspelled his name. It's not like no, there well, are other I examples of that. I wouldn't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so like the art industry it keeps growing in spite of stories like this that yeah. you think would make people more sceptical and more wary. I mean, these stories prove experts can be fooled and fakes can end up on museum walls and in magazines. Everyone instead, they've just sort of accepted that we'll never know how many forgeries 
are out there and every well, art dealer I mean, has dealt with a forgery at least once. It's like NFTs, it's like cryptocurrency, it's like tulips and beanie babies. It's like things are only worth as much as people say they are worth. And as long as people are saying something is worth a lot of money, people are going to want to buy it. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to own it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how unlikely or dumb it is. People are going to want to buy things that people say are worth money. It's the way the world operates. And um, Can I please get some experts to, like, say that, I don't know, my paintings are worth $10 million? You just need a few people to buy them for that much, and then they are worth that much. And that's what the best dealers do. So often a new artist or an established artist, I should say, who's still alive, they'll set up a relationship with the dealer and it is up to that dealer to help them drive prices up for uh, that artist's yeah. work. Um, and they do that like they've got some really dodgy relationships between different galleries where they'll all have these secret agreements that will be like, I'll spend a huge amount of money on your artist's work to drive up their price if you then spend a whole lot of money on my artist's work to drive up the <gasps> price and the demand for that. Isn't that dodgy? Oh, my God, I've got an idea. At our live shows, we're going to be selling some merch and at every live show, I think we should sell one Jacob Stanley Rosie Waterland painting and just see how much people are willing to pay for it. Let's see. At each live show, we will sell a painting. As long as they're paintings of turkeys. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll do. I want to do a painting of a beanie baby and a tulip. <laughs> and I'll do a Polly Pocket. Like, I want to see. Let's see. Mm -hmm. What experiment. are people willing to pay? But yeah, if you want to know more about the. Um, the madness of the modern art economy. There's a documentary on, I think it's Apple iTunes called Blurred Lines. Um, mm. And that takes you through how the prices just became so <sighs> ridiculous. Sort of similar to the way that vintage wines became so mm. ridiculously overpriced just because the market, people started to believe in it more and more and more. And just like with Bitcoin, the hype grows and grows and grows and grows and everyone yeah. feels like they need to get involved. So that's a good record. I'll put that in the um, the show notes. The other ones that are worth watching, there are a couple of documentaries specifically about this case. One's called Driven to Abstraction, which mm -hmm. you need to pay to watch, but it's worth watching. There's really excellent content about the trial and interviews with people as they're leaving the court case for the yeah. um, Desole and Nodler trial. Um, there's also one on Netflix that came out late last year. Um, it's called Made You Look and it you have to watch it because this is the only one that um, has Anne being interviewed on camera. Ah, I'm dying to see her it talk. It is incredible. You can see she was defending her steps every step of the way and her decisions mm. every step of the way and you can see she's still totally stuck in her delusion, at least partly, like she continues to blast people who doubted her. And you hear her saying things like, if I'd had more time, I know I would have been able to find the documentation to prove. Oh my God, it's also Elizabeth Holmesy. Yes. And she keeps oh. referring to her discovery and keeps saying that people were bitter and jealous of her discovery. She no. even says, Glafira's no, story babe. never changed. It just evolved. Like she's. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Um, oh, so that, you, yeah, you absolutely have to watch that one, but I'd recommend watching both of them. 
Um, I also read an entire book called The Confidence Game because it, I mm-hmm. knew it had a chapter about Anne Friedman and Glafira. Yeah, I've read that, that book. Oh, it's really good. Yes. Yeah, about all con women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that. I think book, I recommended that to you. You probably did, and that's why it yeah. was on my list for a while. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that book and that author really takes the point of view that Anne was completely scammed. Yeah. And she was 100% innocent. She just fell victim to an expert like Glafira. Um, so I'll post a link to that. And also there's a really good Vanity Fair article that came out just after all of this stuff mm. had been revealed, but certain details were yet to come to light. So that's a really good starting point to read about. <sighs> but, um, yeah, that is just the gist of the Nodler Art Gallery forgery scam, which Houses. I think just says so much about how ridiculous the um, high-end art world really is. Well, so many of our stories just end with the motto, rich people are idiots. Mm-hmm. And that's why <laughs> we don't mind when they're targeted idiots. for scams like No, <laughs> no. I mean, this is one that's easy to laugh about because this is people talking about their $8 million paintings. Mm. It's like, so you got scammed. Yeah, that sucks. But It's a victimless you know, crime. Yeah. It, well, yeah, essentially it is. Mm. So, oh my goodness, that was good. <laughs> And totally new. Yeah, I think she that's the knew. side of the fence that I've landed on. I'm sorry, but the Pollock without the C or whatever, that's, I'm sorry. Mm. She knew. I think she just did such a good job of covering her tracks along the way. So even the fact that she'd bought three of the paintings that Glafira brought in for mm. herself, she used that as proof of like, see, this is how much I believed her. I actually invested in these pieces myself, but... She only paid Glafira like $20,000 yeah. a pop for those paintings. like Not the $18 million markups. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to sort of cover your tracks and back uh, up the story that you believe they were real because who'd knowingly choose to buy fakes? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, even if, if it was just negligence, why is she allowed to still yeah. be an art dealer? Why are people still buying from so her? So wild. Mm. Because if they think they can make some money, they want it. I'll put a link to her website, actually. <gasps> oh, yes. Yeah. I want to see There's video that. content that's available of um, her introducing new exhibitions. <laughs> calling them a celebration of uniqueness. A celebration of Andy Warhong. <laughs> <laughs> Original. <laughs> Legit. Oh, that was really good. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Stay tuned for tickets for the live show. Oh, yeah, buy tickets, buy tickets. Bye. Listener.